give you a little backstory before we go into the conversation with our guest today. I actually came across So I want to thank everyone for stopping by and sitting back with me. I want to thank everyone for stopping by and sitting back with me. All right, we are back for another great episode of Black Equity Podcast. And I am really excited about this conversation. I actually uh, recently read. Uh, the book by, by the author that's joining us today called The Money Game. Uh, also, he is the founder of dreamwithdan.com and uh, he has some other books I want to talk about as well. I'm really excited about uh, this conversation, learning about Black equity, learning about his background and seeing where this conversation unfolds. Um, Dream with Dan, Dan Mangana, welcome to Black Equity Podcast. Thanks for having me, DJ. You're very welcome. So for those who don't know who you are, just tell us a little bit about yourself uh, and how you began writing. We'll start there. So uh, my name is Daniel Mangella. I'm from East London in the UK. My parents emigrated to the UK from Zimbabwe in Southern Africa in the late 70s. When they emigrated, it was still called Southern Rhodesia. We hadn't had independence yet. Um, they were actually education migrants, not economic migrants, interesting. Mm. So um, there was a big migration of Afro-Caribbean people to the UK in what mm -hmm. was called the Windrush era. So what happened was, is that after the Second World War, the UK government didn't have enough skilled labor to rebuild the country after the Second World War. So they reached out to the Commonwealth and they said to the countries that they colonized um, and said, mm -hmm. hey, do you want to come and live in England? Um, so we had a lot of people from different parts of the Caribbean that moved across. And that was what the predominant black community was between like the, the 40s, 50s and 60s leading into the 70s when my mum and dad um, came across. My dad went over first, laid the, you know, set everything up, moved over. My older brother and sister who were born in Zimbabwe then, then came across. My sister was three, my brother was five, I think. Mm. Um, and then I was born in the early 80s in the UK. So I was the, the first, first generation. So uh, that was, education was a big part of, you know, what we were brought up. To, to believe to be the most important thing. However, I had the entrepreneurial bug from very, very early. I've actually only ever had two jobs in my life. I've never been in corporate, quote unquote. I worked in a cinema when I was 15 years old. And then when I was rebuilding my life after losing everything the second time um, from about 2012, I worked in a call center for six months whilst I was building up my, uh, my last um, main business. So my journey has been an entrepreneurial one. I got into mindfulness, mindset and that kind of woo -woo mystical world quite early put it this way i read think and grow rich when i was 17 years old um i read machiavelli the prince when i was 19 uh i read the science of getting rich when i was 18 so i was reading like i was buying earl nightingale tapes at like 17 mm -hmm. 18 years old and listening to that that's where i came from so I got into manifesting. I mean, manifesting as a phrase really only got popularized by the secret, but I got into that kind of stuff about the age of 16 or 17 years old. So I've been in this kind of information for about 20, 21 years. 
I then got brought into what was then called the ancient Egyptian order when I was 19 stroke 20 years old. Um, started learning about Nawapianism and, and learning about that kind of stuff, which started to get my brain thinking differently and challenging our concepts of reality, where we came from and stuff from about that age also. I didn't end up continuing with that path. There were some things I didn't really agree with, with the approach that that particular community had to the way that the world, world worked and where it looked. But I will forever be grateful for the way that it had my brain thinking differently, um, for the uh, introduction to, to mysticism and esoterics and to looking at the world from a different, through a different lens. But everything that you see me teaching now, everything you read about in my books, you hear me talk about on the podcast in content when I'm working with people, is a result of basically 20 years of going through different iterations of the same central truth. As within, so without. As above, so below. Thoughts are things. And ultimately, we are the authors and creators of the reality that we're experiencing now. Mm, that's powerful. Um, I mean, I thought about Earl Nightingale, what, the strangest secret? The strangest secret, yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, I used to listen to that all the time. I probably need to get back to listening to it. Um, Thinking Grow Rich, obviously. The Science mm-hmm. of Getting Rich. Uh, there was something mm-hmm. else you mentioned. Uh, it was the second book you mentioned uh, that, that stood out to me. I can't remember what it was. But um, you seem to, if you started that at 17, you seem to have started pretty early, mm-hmm. um, really diving into realizing some, some universal truths. Mm-hmm. Was there anything before 17 that you could attribute to uh, you getting to that stage earlier than a lot, a lot of other people? I was diagnosed with Asperger's at 27 years old. So I'm on the autistic spectrum. So my brain doesn't really function in a typical way. I'm neurodiverse. So a lot of things that people would just accept and roll with, a lot of things that most people just think and roll with, my brain physically is incapable of just accepting and processing because it challenges everything. It has to make sense. Otherwise, I literally have a short circuit in my brain. So even going to, so I was raised in a very conservative Christian home, even going to like Bible school, right? And being told that certain things, like I just, I, I was the kid that the, the, the pastor's like, yeah, yeah, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things are of God, just shut up and stay at the back of the room like you're confusing it. Little things like, the creation story says, let there be light on day one, but the sun, moon, and stars were created on day three, but the light comes mm. from the sun. So how does that work? Right. Good point. Right. I started getting into looking at the Aramic original text. I had a, a, a keyword study Bible quite young, which actually has a little reference number next to certain words. And then you go to the back and it tells you what the original Aramic is for the Old Testament and the original New Testament Greek is, Mm -hmm. which isn't even the original, but that's another story, in the back and tells you what it means. Elohim is plural. Eloh is singular. You've got about three or four different words that are translated into the word God in the Old Testament. And then I got introduced to the Enuma Elish, I'm like, hang on a minute. This is older than that. And the story looks the same, but this one's different. I don't get it. Right? We've got, we got to get deep up in here. I can, I, can, I can feel it now. Go ahead. Let's look at the Noah or Nuh. Right? Go to the Enuma Elish. You've got the story of Opnifishtim, which looks very, very eerily similar. The story is very different. But when you look at the original story, actually, it makes more sense as to what was going on. You know? So... I was always challenging. My brain was always thinking. So I was always digging around looking for what could make sense. Again, I didn't know why my brain did this. I just knew that I had to do it. So I read a book called um, The The Midas Method by a man who became my first official pen pal mentor, Stuart Goldsmith. And, you know, I I read that book when I was 18 years old and I started backtracking. I said, okay, where did he get his information from? How do I know that he's not full of it? Mm Mm-hmm. So I backtracked to the books that he, any name that he would mention or any book that he would reference, I'd go and read that book. 
And then I do the same thing. I go to the reference at the back of the bibliography and I'll be reading those books and then go back and reading those books. And it all started coming back to the same place as above, so below, as within, so without. So it was just this journey of continuing to question, of continuing to explore, seeking to understand because without that understanding, I literally can't function without that understanding. Mm. And that's how I ended up being this way. So I've heard both of those before as a foundation of, of where people begin. So what does that mean to you uh, as, a, as above, so below, as within, so w- the second part, how, what does that actually mean to you? So there's a lot of esoterics in that. And we're talking about polarity. We're talking about contrast. It goes back to the true meaning of the Big Bang, which, but all of that aside, right? right. What we're seeing is that reality is effectively a mirror. And we're seeing two images that are reflected and and working together to create the thing that we observe and call our reality. Reality exists way beyond what we have with our senses. If you look at the light spectrum, right? You've got the spectrum of light. We're only perceiving like this tiny segment of the entire spectrum of light. There's so much more happening. Like this conversation is happening because information's moving. We can't see it, but it's there. Right. I'm on Wi-Fi right now. The Me router too. is in the front of my office building. Right. Is it not real because I can't see it or taste it or touch it? No, it's it's Still a part there. of reality, but outside of perceivable reality. Mm. Right. As above, so below looks at the relationship between the unseen and the seen, and how everything that is seen was once unseen, just like this image that we're seeing on this computer screen was once unseen. It was a non-physical thing Mm -hmm. that took form and now we're interpreting it and engaging with it with our senses. So the world of polarity, we've got this tension between non-physical and physical, both of which have equal weight when perceived from a, a perspective that sees it for what it is, but we're somewhat limited in our perspective because we're looking at just the part of it that we could perceive with our senses which is a very tiny piece of the whole picture. So what's going on inside reflects and becomes what's seen outside and everything that was outside was once unperceivable and yet quite tangible from another perspective inside. You know, as I was reading, um, I was reading The Money Game and I definitely want people to read this book. The thing that stood out to me was the simplicity of everything. Because uh, often when we're talking about money and riches and wealth and prosperity, people tend to overcomplicate it with so many other distractions. Mm-hmm. Uh, we tend to focus more on like the vehicles of how to get there, mm-hmm. uh, what somebody else did. But your book is doing something a little bit different. If you could, what was your, your overall goal for the money game? What I'd love to do is I'd love to just backtrack to where this came from, right? And 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 the evidence, like you said, that brought me to actually sharing this with the world. Sure. Because this started off with an experiment to see whether I was full of crap or not. Okay? Right. I, I made and lost two multi-million pound fortunes by the age of 23. When I was making, rebuilding my life after the second time, which took me out, this story for another time, that took me out of the game. You know, I, I went into suicidal ideation and I ended up rebuilding my life. My book, Stepping Beyond Intention, is that journey of rebuilding, right? 2018, I had this very beautiful, mystical, spiritual meditation experience where I was called to walk away from the multiple seven-figure business that I built up after that time to come and do what I do now. But I spent from February through to, I want to say, late August, early September, just living off of my savings because I'd walked away from the business. I didn't take anything out. Whatever I had, I had, I closed the doors on it, shut down the website, everything. I was off my own back traveling the world and teaching beyond intention to people, but the money was going to run out at some point. Right. And I was like, well, and I remember I was in, I was in Toronto. I'd, I'd come up there. We were meant to teach a workshop, but everything hadn't worked out with the workshop I was meant to teach. And um, I was like, 
I'm running around here, effectively going broke technically, telling people you can create your reality. Well, if that's true, I should be able to create reality where I've got enough money to do this. Right. Let's see if this works. Let's mm. see if what I'm saying is real. And so I did the first iteration of the money game. I wrote down the intention and got into the vibrational frequency of it being real. I said, okay, put it away. The next day, so I, I, I asked for $50. The next day, 193 euros showed up in my bank account randomly. I said, okay, cool. But if something's real, it should be repeatable. And so I kept doing it. I kept doing it until I got to the point where September, about a month later, I asked for $10,000. And then um, I got a notification four days later of seven and a half, 7.7, 7,700 pounds, which was about 10, it, just, it was just over $10,000 dropping in my bank account. Mm. I said, okay, this is real. So I started backtracking, tightening it up, going over things and, and getting it formalized. And then I kept using it. I was using it, I was using it. I'd had a conversation with my friend, Barry, who's very, very street businessman. Like he just sold a business from multiple, multiple seven figures. In fact, multiple, eight figures, multiple eight figures, actually. I think he sold his business for like 50, 60 mil. And um, I was in a car with him. I taught a workshop up in California. And he was like, Dan, you know that this is what actually led me to thinking more about the money. So he's like, Dan, I think it's beautiful that you're sharing your gifts with the world. Great, applaud you. But don't you think that if you allowed abundance into your life, you could do more to help more people? So off the back of that, that's when I actually started selling my services. Up until then, I wasn't selling anything. People could make donations. What was happening is that people were giving me money to come to their town, their city, their country to teach my work. They put me up, they'd feed me. So I didn't really need, all my needs are taken care of. But I sat down and said, okay, I'm going to create, I'm going to create a business around this. I built my business to multiple six figures in four and a half months with a 500 person email list, not going in people's DMs, not harassing people to buy anything, but applying these same principles of effectively manifesting customers and clients from my business. January of 2019, I taught a workshop in New York. It was a mastermind that we did in New York. Well, technically New Jersey, but we're not going to be. Yeah, we, yeah. Could, we won't tell we were, Well, we're just across the river. We were right. in Jersey City, so we're looking at Manhattan through the window, all right? Right, right. We're in New York. But um, <laughs> that was the first time that I publicly taught the money game. Okay. To people. I just launched Micro to Millions, my Micro to Millions program a little bit before that. It was my signature program where we teach this work of abundance to people. And it was going off the hook. People money mm. manifesting money left, right, and center. To date, the record is $75,000 manifested in two days, applying the same principles that in that book. So when I started seeing these results, I was like, I've got to, like more people need this. Mm -hmm. We did a challenge first. We did a five day challenge to give people the chance to, because I needed to see these are people that were in my work that had more access to me. They were paying money to me. They were, you know, I was coaching them. I needed to see, can it work with complete strangers who don't know me, have never done anything. And people were manifesting tens of thousands of dollars in a matter of days. So this, this stuff works. And that's when I said, I had to write this book and get it in people's hands. And the thing is, is that the reason why it's simple is because reality really isn't that complicated. There are rules on which it's based, which if honored and followed will lead to success. I often find in one of, I'm, I'm certified in a modality called reality transurfing, uh, which is by this Russian, um, Russian guy, mystic, whatever you want to call him, called Vadim Zeland. And in one of his books, he says, if it's complicated, probably bs mm. like if people struggle to explain it it's probably yes yeah, right. and the thing for me is that you can come into any of my communities and ask anybody people see real stuff people have applied my work they're millionaires in less than a year people have created financial freedom in months this isn't me making stuff up or you can go and see these uh, this is real and for me it being real numbers don't lie in the words of jay-z right numbers don't lie. you can't like I can sit here and wow you with all of my mystical wisdom and oh, I know this and that. What the dickens does it matter if it's not affecting real change repeatedly in other people's lives? And for me, the key to that is simplicity. Can I communicate something to you that you can follow and understand? The money game, it's like 60 pages. There's no fluff. 
is that right. this is what you do. This is why it works. Try it for yourself and see. Have you ever had someone that they didn't necessarily play the money game yet, mm-hmm. but they they read the book and then something happened? Always. Because I'll, I'll share with you mine. Um, so I read your book maybe about three weeks at the time that we're recording today. Mm-hmm. And you're right, it's not long, but it did take me uh, in a total two different days to read mm-hmm. it. Um, and the third day, I hadn't played no money game yet, haven't done anything. I was just pondering it. All this stuff starts showing up um, that I've been wanting. Uh, there was this mentor that I wanted access to that was teaching a specific subject. Uh, I know before we started uh, talking, we were talking about martial arts and mm-hmm. uh, yoga, but there was something another area that I really wanted uh, a guidance in showed up. Hmm. Um, certain certain uh, business connections and uh, possible podcast opportunities, they all start showing up like the next day. I hadn't played no game. I hadn't even mm-hmm. applied it yet. So I'm wondering mm-hmm. what, what do you say? Because I know you, you said that you've seen that happen. What do you say mm-hmm. to someone who just reads through and at mm-hmm. the end of the book, all this stuff starts shifting in their life. So my thing is this, you know, inner world leads into the outer world. Where does the inner world come from? Did we wake up this morning and become the person that we are today overnight? No, it was the accumulation of inputs that programmed our internal environment in terms of thought quality and emotions, which is all frequency and vibration is. You can contact with it back and forth. There's a symbiotic relationship with emotion. That's the way that we interpret it. It happened over time. When you introduce a disruption to that internal environment, there must be a disruption in your external environment because they are directly correlated. So when a book that's easy to understand, I've been very, very, very thick to make sure that it makes sense. Like we step you through the process. You get the opportunity to go and see things to say this because your mind is not your enemy. It's your friend. It just goes on the basis of what makes sense to it. Also, the money game doesn't try to get too woo-woo, magical, spiritual, supernatural. It's like, here, try this. It makes sense. So the mind can accept it. So because the mind can accept it, it starts to work to shift into that new information and assimilate that new information that's been taken on. As a result, your outer environment has to change because the outer environment is directly correlated to the inner environment. Mm. So those who come to the book open, open to something new, open to a change, not even looking for it, just open to it. Maybe this book is going to do something. That new information starts to create a change in the inner environment that must be reflected in the outer environment because those are the laws by which physical reality is built. Well, I'm going to come back to this idea of, of frequency and what it all means, especially for business owners and investors. But I want to dive in even deeper on the writing side mm-hmm. uh, for those who want to learn more about that. What was the first book that you officially wrote and published? Mm-hmm. From time to time. And what inspired that one? Getting off my butt and stopping making writing a book such a big thing. Mm. I've been working on Stepping Beyond Intention in different iterations, under different names. By the time it was published the first time, because I took it off the shelf one day later and started working on it again, for nine years, mm. eight years. I'd done like four or five different drafts. I'd really made it this big, bad thing. Oh my God, I'm writing a book and this is my life's work and <laughs> I've got to get it perfect. I was like, I need to minimize the thing on this. I just need to get published. So I looked in my world and I said, what's something that I can give to the world that will make a difference that I can get done in like the next 30 days? Mm. And I've got a strategy around time mastery. That's why it's called from time to time, from time management to time mastery. Mm. And I just sat down and did it. I got the book out, got it done, published out. Now I'm a published author. Oh, okay. Do I feel any different? Did the stars fall from the skies? Did the angels come and sing? No, I've got a bloody book out. Okay, now that we've reduced that, 
let's go out and get another book done. And then whilst I was working on that, uh, so my website is dreamwithdan.com. My company is Dreamer HQ. I'm the Dreamer CEO. My catchphrase is dream with your eyes open. And people kept asking me, what does that mean? I said, oh, I can write a book about that. So the next, I think later that year, I said, let me just write a book about that. So I wrote a motivational, inspiration book called Dream, um, The Dreamer's Manifesto, which explains mm-hmm. what dream with your eyes open means. Again, pocketbook. I don't think I've got a copy here, but it's like that big. You can put it in your back pocket. You can read it in a couple of hours. It's just inspiring and motivational. And that just built some momentum for me to get Seven Beyond Intention out, which I did. We just did a new edit that we put out now with a new cover and uh, Jack Canfield. Um, I was interviewed on his show. So we've got like some quotes from him about my work and blah, 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 blah. And we put that out and then we got the money game out um, last year. We put money game out. Wow. And so how does, there's this uh, book I'm reading uh, about becoming a key person of influence. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways to influence people within your your industry mm-hmm. is uh, through published works. Mm-hmm. And I know you're saying, you know, it wasn't this big thing I was making out to be. Mm-hmm. But do you think by publishing these works, did it shift anything as far as the way people interacted with you or yeah. anything like I that? Now, like I write for Entrepreneur Magazine, I write for Brains Magazine, I write for Elephant Journal. Um, by the time this has come out, we're pitching a couple more magazines for me to be able to write for now. So that could have changed too. Mm-hmm. I've been on pretty much every single major TV network. Um, I've been in, in, interviewed by, you know, big renowned authors. But you have to, there's like a collective agreement that you have to have certain things in order in order for them to take you seriously. Right. I have a best-selling book. I've got other books. I've got more than 100 episodes of my podcast with a couple hundred reviews. We've set up a, a second podcast now specifically for business owners. I think we've got more than 100 reviews on that one too. We get, you know, solid downloads. I write blogs or articles at least two, three times a week that you can find. You know, I've been in Forbes. I've been in the Wall Street Journal. These just create these create uh, an adherence to the collective agreements that people hold about what being a voice of authority is. Right. He's this, he's that, uh, I'm just a human that's got words in certain places. That's it. So that I, I, I always love to stay humble about that. It doesn't mean that right. I'm extra special. Nothing that I'm saying is quote unquote new. I'm putting it in a new packaging to speak in my voice so that right. people can hear it in a new way. But you rip apart anything that anyone's got to say. It's really going to come, anyone who's worth their soul, it's really going to come down to some simple, simple truths. You know, when it comes to religion and spirituality, for example, I practice what I call the purple brick theory. And I've had that since, I've had that for the best part of 20 years, that philosophy, which it came from me, actually, you know, I did, grew up conservative Christian. I did the whole digging into Judaism. I learned how to transliterate and understand um, Arab, um, Arabic, Hebrew. Um, I went and studied Zoroastrianism, uh, uh, Jainism, all these seekers, all these little, te- I, I did a Ramadan so I could understand what the Islamic mindset is because I had no relationship to the Islamic world because it was so far outside of my knowledge. So I went, I did for a year. I did, I prayed five times a day for a year. I ate nothing but halal food for a year and I did a Ramadan for a year so I could understand the Islamic mindset. I read the Quran from front to back. I learned to read the Arabic. I've done an azan. I did all this so that I could understand it. And do you know what I found at the end of the day? Everybody's saying the same thing. In a different way. In a different way. When you strip away blatant manipulation, right? You know, we take the Council of Nicaea out of the picture and just look at the original text without the selective choice of what's going to make it into the Bible, right? You go and read a Gnostic Bible. You go and look at things in the original language. You start looking at the source text. You start looking at the original stories. The four, the, the, the New Testament gospels, the earliest of those were written 70 years after the fact. You start going into the Gnostic Bible and going to the Dead Sea Scrolls and see what people were actually saying at the time. That was mystical as fudge. Jesus was about some woo-woo. He was about that woo-woo life, right? <laughs> he was about it, you know? I feel you. People want to say vegan this, vegan that. Jesus was feeding people fish. He wasn't vegan. Right. Right? Very true. So 
when you start to get into it, even when you go, did you know that the ab Aborigines, the Aboriginals have got a dream tale that basically is the same story as Adam and Eve, but it's got slightly different variations. Mm. And I've, I've heard that about Jesus as well, where, you know, there were previous, uh, don't, I'm not an expert on this, mm -hmm. but there were previous, um, I guess, mm -hmm. gods mm -hmm. that had a similar story of, yeah, uh, you go into Zoroastrianism. Exactly. Yeah, you go into um, Good Lord. There was the Great Shepherd Mithras. Mithras, the Great Shepherd. Mithras, the Great Shepherd. Again, very, very similar things. When you go into the Bible, there are actually three Jesuses that are referenced in the Bible. But it's very, it's very sly. But there are three different people whose stories are actually interwoven into that. Now, does that take away from the truth and the impact that Christianity and these other things have been before? No. At the end of the day, do you what works for you. But at the end of the day, my thing is when we start allowing this thing that really is saying the same thing to become the means by which we start to justify hating each other, right. we start to justify strife with each other, we start to justify saying, I'm better than you, you're a savage, you're this, you're an infidel, you're this. It's just nonsensical. I personally believe that God, whatever you want to call it, speaks to and through us in whatever language that we understand in a way that we can connect with it. If you go through time, there have been different iterations. Before Islam, we had Christianity was, 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 was the thing, right? Which really came from Gnosticism, which really just came from the teachings that Jesus had to say, which is just really taking people back to the truth. Mm -hmm. Then you had this, you had that. Over the millennia, you've had truth being spread. Before we had Abraham and Isaac, before we had that, so what was happening? What, everyone's going to hell that was, was around before Abraham? What was right. going on, right? What was happening with the cave people? They didn't have a crucifix because Jesus hadn't been around. So what's going on with them? But there were still universal truths of divine divinity speaking to and through people so that they could connect with it. At the end of the day, I think really what it comes down to is what Jesus said. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind. The second law unto it, Love thy neighbor as thyself. Be a decent human. <laughs> Be a decent human, man. Um, that's what I don't even know how we got into this topic, but yeah, that's <laughs> we're just letting the flow, my brother. We're letting the flow. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's what my, my thoughts are on 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 on, on that. I, I have a question for you mm -hmm. that may seem a little off kilter, but I gotta <laughs> I gotta know. I know you've mentioned uh, you mentioned Qurans and all these great works, but I'm still stuck on a, a book that you mentioned earlier today. And mm -hmm. I want to hear your thoughts on this. Mm -hmm. What, when you read uh, The Prince by mm -hmm. Machiavelli, mm -hmm. what's inside of that book that you, that you think, and I know you can't speak for anyone else, mm -hmm. what's inside of that book that would make Tupac change his name to Machiavelli? So Niccolo Machiavelli was, um, a political thinker. He was a, an ambassador for Florence, but he was a political thinker. The whole book of um, The Prince was him basically, it was a love letter to Cesare Borgia because Cesare was that guy in that period of time. Cesare's dad was the Pope. Um, and he was, he was killing it. He was basically, he was about that life. And so, it's quoted that Machiavelli wanted to make sure that he was in with the, the guy who was about their life at the time. And so mm -hmm. it was a love letter to, to Cesare because then he went and wrote another book called The Republic where he basically argues for the other side of things a little right. while later. And he still got exiled from Florence. So it didn't even work out for him in the end. But Machiavelli speaks truths that I think sometimes we don't want to ex except about the shadow side to humanity. Mm. So for example, one of the questions that he explores is whether it's better to be feared or to be loved. Yes. Right? And he tells real stories and real, real life examples. It's a, it's a very well put together book because he gives real examples. And he basically comes to the conclusion, well, people fear when the prince chooses, but they love when they choose. You can't control whether people will love you, but you can control if people will fear you. Now, mm. for me, it really comes down to the kind of human that you want to be, the kind of legacy that you want to leave and right. how you want, want to lead or, or be. So for me, 
I don't really want to lead from a position of fear. Right. That's not really where I'm at. But then I also don't want to try and incite love. I want to live in integrity and then be resourced to deal with what that's going to mean in terms of how we relate with people, you know? So that being said, it's interesting to understand the shadow side of humanity from a different angle and to explore those shadows put together in a very well-documented and well-illustrated series of arguments that a very clever man who was had his finger on the pulse has presented. Do you see politicians playing from that playbook today? Yes. It's like the 48 Laws of Power by Robert Greene. People right. can use that to manipulate or they can use it to be resourced so that people can't manipulate them. You have a choice. Right. You know? So for me, it's about being resourced. I think you can't put your head in the sand and say nobody's going to get me because I can't see what they're doing. Right? Right. But it doesn't mean me understand. So for example, we're talking about martial arts. I've been doing martial arts, various types, for about 30 years with breaks, right? I've not been active for a couple of years, but with breaks. I've done Wushu Kwan, uh, different forms of Kung Fu, Taekwondo, Korean kickboxing, karate, jiu-jitsu, whatever. I know death killer gri- grips. I don't go around using it on people. Right. But it's going to be much more difficult for someone to pull one of those moves on me. Right. Right. I'm resourced. But resourcing doesn't even mean that I'm looking for that thing. It just means that I'm resourced so that I'm able to move with less fear because that's not something that can creep up on me. Right. And that's just the way I like to operate. I think that in terms of the strategic and appreciation of the shadow side of humanity, looking at the period of time when that happened with Tupac and what was going on, because the world of hip hop, um, particularly West Coast hip hop at that time, which was very gang mm-hmm. dominated, should right. Like, I mean, do we need to say any more? Should that was about <laughs> no, that like. And so understanding those dynamics through the lens of a man who studied that kind of kill or be killed medieval dynamic, which is what we basically see in, for me, the hood dynamic is very much kill or be killed, that very medieval feudal dynamic that you see happening, whether you're in the favelas of Brazil or whether you're in the, 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 the hoods of, of Detroit, like, or whatever, it's, it's that very, it's that dynamic, that kill or be killed dynamic. So understanding it, does put you in a position where you can navigate with more grace and ease. And for me, I think that's what really Tupac was demonstrating that he had, he overstood those dynamics and was therefore able to, to navigate them differently. But before we head out, I want to make sure that we also talk about, I know you said you, uh, you have two podcasts, right? Is that what I heard? Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. If you could tell us about your podcast and uh, I know you mentioned business owners, just tell mm-hmm. us about, uh your podcast and what you're working on so we've got two podcasts the main one the, the first one should i say is um do do it with dan that's like a that we've been going for three years now recently we've been focusing on motivational and inspirational interviews and conversations we're starting to move back into more solo episodes now clips of content and stuff like that but if you backtrack i've got teachings on there um clips from retreats and workshops that i've done but it's predominantly at the moment, like interviews with inspirational people that I just, I find their stories really cool. It's cool conversations with cool people. It's really yeah. what to do it with Dan is. We post an episode every fr- Friday, just like a cool conversation. Um, the other podcast is uh, Beyond Success. And that's with business owners, entrepreneurs, thought leaders. And it's really about inspir- inspiring business owners and entrepreneurs to start looking at the abundant approach to wealth creation and having successful business, giving them people that they can learn from um, some strategies, some hacks, and tips. We get some really cool people on both podcasts. That's awesome. I, I think it's important. I'm always a big fan of, hey, if you listen to Black Equity, that's awesome. But then, hey, hey there's some other great podcasts too, just to get different uh, perspectives. Because our main goal here is more of a networking piece. Mm-hmm. You know, let's introduce you to all the different movers and shakers uh, mm-hmm. in the space, and then go check out all the different things that they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I have one more question that I want to ask you before we let everybody know uh, where they can go and check out all your work. I know we mentioned 
your website already, but I want to do it one more time. So you mentioned all these different, uh, I guess, disciplines within martial arts. Mm -hmm. I know through the book and through our conversation earlier today, you were talking about uh, jiu-jitsu. Why do you choose that Mm -hmm. over the other, not necessarily over, why why have you gravitated more towards that discipline over others? So my, um, my Asperger's, one of my superpowers is anything systemized, I learn it really, really quickly. Okay. So martial arts tends to, traditional martial arts tend to be very, very systemized. You learn this strike, you learn this kata or this form. Someone does this, you can do this, this, this or that. So I would advance in martial arts very, very quickly. Pretty much every martial art that I've been in, very, very soon, I'm not allowed to spar with people at my level. I'm only allowed to spar with the higher level people or with the teachers because the systemized nature of it means that I pick it up quickly and I take out the people at my level. I'm not being challenged in the combat side of things. Not the learning, but the combat application of it. Right. Jiu-jitsu is not that situation at all. Jiu-jitsu is Ooh. random. You don't know. So like, if someone's to throw a right hook at me, there's a predictable number of ways I can address that right hook, counter it and take them down. Or they can see that and they can respond in kind, whether they're gonna use a leg, an elbow, a knee or whatever, a head. There's a predictable level of number of things. So you can handle it. You, you can master that quite rapidly. Three years, four years of hard work, you can get to the black belt in many martial arts disciplines. The average in jiu-jitsu if you even get to black belt, there are not many black belts, even if you get to black belt, 10 to 12 years minimum. Mm. You will spend three to four years on every belt in jiu-jitsu. As I'm still only a one-stripe white belt. Yeah, I've taken a year and a half off, but I'm only a one-stripe white belt in effectively two and a half years of training. So you can expect to do a stripe every year to year and a half if you're training consistently with jiu-jitsu. It's challenging. It's very much like a chess game. When you're, in the, when you're on the mat, someone can do any of a million different things, and then you need to be ready to deal with any of the million things that are going to happen to you. You don't know what way it's going to go. Developing a mastery in that is really being ready to deal with whatever's going to come and be able to respond to that with something that they may not see coming. You know? So it's, um, it's just a, a very, very different approach. It's very challenging. I look at another, like traditional martial arts, like, yeah, I'll get into it. I know that I'll be able to master it within a number of years. If I show up and consistently and train and work it, I'll be able to master it. Jiu-Jitsu, I doubt I will ever master it. And that excites me because it's a big challenge. So it's always going to put me in my toes. That's a great explanation. Uh, What do you, how do you, and this might be a really good question for just mentors overall. Mm -hmm. How do you know if an instructor is the right instructor or does the instructor even matter? Is it really more just about you or is it a mixture of both as far as, uh, you know, choosing someone to, to work with and be guided by? So how do you pick, or does it even matter the instructor that mm-hmm. you select for martial arts or even a mentor, do those actually matter of who you have? Or is it really more about your internal decisions of what you're doing? Or is it a mixture of both? I think it's a mixture of both. So for me, and I actually answered this question on, um, I do a live show on Facebook every Wednesday. And this is a question someone asked about a business mentor. And I said, there's three things that I really do advocate looking at. Number one, what's this person's track record as a mentor? Not as a practitioner, but as a mm. A good business person doesn't mean that that person will be a great mentor. Right. A martial artist doesn't mean that they're going to be a great mentor. And actually, being a crap martial artist himself doesn't mean that they don't know how to get the best out of you. Mm. Look at sports. Every great sports manager or coach isn't necessarily someone that practices themselves. They might just know how to get the best out of their people. Look at fighting, boxers. Um, look at um, Titan's first coach, his first trainer amazing he probably wouldn't last two seconds in the ring but he'll make sure that you're going to be the the last person standing so what's that person's track record as a mentor as a coach as a leader number one number two 
do they resonate with you in terms of how they communicate that greatness to their students? Because if someone's, for example, too soft and you need a bit more push, mm-hmm. that's probably not going to work. If someone's a bit too hard and you need a bit more soft, that's probably not going to be too good. If yeah. someone, Mr. Miyagi style, and you need, I don't know. What's the, the guy from um, the, the old school Kung Fu ones that like beat the crap out of you and like make you good <laughs> that way? Like, which one's, which one's your... Right. Which what's your so that demands that you know yourself. I was just about to say that everything yeah. you're saying sounds like self is going mm-hmm. to be the key here. So then you know yeah. what you you best operate in. Yeah. So I personally don't want to add to the learning curve by having to learn like new languaging and all the things. Yeah. I'd rather just find someone that resonates with where I'm at right now and then gets the best out of me where I'm at right now. And I think I might have interrupted you. I think you said th- three things. That yeah, the, th- the third thing oh. is um, find somebody that really wants the best from you. Mm, that's a good one. Right? Because someone might be a great mentor. You might get along, but they might just want your money. There's going to be something in the resonant frequency of that that's going to support you being able to expand into the space that's being created by them contributing to wanting the best from you. Mm. All three of those is powerful. I really like that second one. I really like all of them. You said something in there I think is so key. That coach or mentor, uh, instructor, sensei, however, you know, whatever the situation may be, they may not have been necessarily that great. Mm -hmm. That's a key. That's a key right there. Like, I mm-hmm. think of, like, Tyrone Liu. Uh, he's a coach for the Clippers, but he was coaching mm-hmm. uh, Cleveland Cavaliers when they won the championship. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I remember Tyrone Liu getting stepped over by Allen Iverson uh, during the playoffs when he was a player. And, you know, Tyrone Liu, was, he was, I'm a Laker fan. And I remember Tyrone Liu. He was all right. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm sure he's better than me at, at basketball, but he was okay. There was nothing mm-hmm. magical about Tyrone Liu. But then you see him now as a coach and you see what he, how, how he's, you know, he's won that championship. He's built really great um, coaching staffs that go on to become head coaches. Mm-hmm. And it's like night and day. Mm-hmm. And so what you're saying is so powerful. What you think is the shiny object and the, the big person that you should, that should be mentoring you may very well be the person who doesn't know how to mentor. And then the person who kind of in the middle of the road doesn't have the big name, doesn't have whatever it is, uh, the shiny the shiny suit uh, to go with them, they may very well be the perfect person for you. So you can't just disregard people uh, based off of like notoriety or status. Mm-hmm. Very powerful. I, mean, I, I learned so much from my five-year-old stepdaughter. Mm. Ain't that something? I learned a lot my nephews and nieces a lot just to not to go down on a tangent on this one but be open to the divine communicating truth to you through everything around you say that one more time if you don't mind open to the divine communicating truth to you through everything around you gotcha i hear you loud and clear Mm. i hear you loud and clear okay um one, one last time, where can people go to check out everything that you have going on? And they can decide for themselves if, you know, if they want to buy the book, they want to listen to the podcast. Let us know everywhere we can go and learn about you. There's one place. Better to give one call to action, right, so that people can go and do it. So I want everyone who's listening to this right now, don't wait and say you're going to do it later. Head to dreamwithdan.com right now whilst you're listening to this podcast. And there's going to be a pop-up that's going to say, hey, do you want to learn how to be a harmonious money magnet? And that's going to give you access to a video that I've created. It's about 40 minutes long. You don't have to watch the video now, but go ahead and sign up for it. That will break down everything that I talk about in money game. Not just about money, though. These concepts, when you understand it, you can apply to your health, to your relationships, to your business, to your career, to finding your purpose, because everything's created on the same rules. The only reason why I use money is because it's very tangible. If you go out to create $100 and it doesn't show up, 
it doesn't work. You got to create $100, it works. You can take that same creative principle, that same manifestation principle, and apply it to health, relationships, or anything else. So head to dreamwithdan.com right now, sign up for that video, sit down, set the time aside, get a pen and paper, take some notes, level up your life. Dan, I want to thank you for stopping by Black Equity Podcast. Thank you. Um, it's always a pleasure uh, to speak with different, especially what I really enjoy about our conversation is it's really bigger than business or money. I sense that this conversation is really about internal peace, mm. internal happiness. Mm-hmm. And like you said, really paying attention to what's around you and the messages uh, that, that are all around you. I want to thank you for waking me up to some some universal truths today that I need to uh, start embracing a lot more. So thank you for coming to Black Equity and I'll talk to you again soon. My pleasure, thank you so much, DJ. Thank you.